The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Well, good morning, City Church San Francisco. It's good to be with you this morning, albeit virtually uh, from the shores of, of Lake Michigan. Uh, it's been eight years since I was on staff at City Church, and uh, in, in so many ways, uh, City Church, relationships there, San Francisco uh, feels like home. And uh, it's been, in a sense, eight years since we, we left home. Uh, my wife and I were talking about today, in fact, we were talking about Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, and she said to me, the, par the prodigal is returning home. And I said, I, you know, Sarah, I don't think that's how the story goes, because I've been a lot better behaved than Fred has over these last eight years. That said, it's good to be with you. We've been, we've been uh, sneaking into Facebook Live worship every now and then since COVID tide began, and it's been so good to be back, to be engaged with you, and uh, we're so grateful for the five years we had uh, at City Church and the relationships that we still have there. And so today, we're going to look at Luke 15, maybe the most famous of all the parables, and Frederick Buechner once said this about parables. He said, with parables and jokes both, if you've got to have them explained, don't bother. If you've got to have them explained, don't bother. Explanation kills wonder. Uh, and we need more wonder today, don't we? Uh, I think back to many, many years ago now in seminary when we learned rational arguments for the existence of God. And, and even back then, as I heard professors talk about these rational arguments that were supposed to prove to our minds that God really existed, I had this sense that, you know, I don't, I don't follow Jesus because of rational arguments. I follow Jesus because in my being, in my body, I feel weak, insecure, unworthy. And Jesus likes to hang out with people who feel unworthy. Explanation kills wonder. Parables don't produce arguments. They, they evoke wonder. And the reality is, is this is just the third in a series of parables uh, that Jesus tells to a group of stodgy and judgmental religious scholars 
uh, and fundamentalists of the day who'd lost any sense of wonder. Uh, Luke 15 itself begins like this. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. From the words, uh, from the mouths of the Pharisees and scribes, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's all it took for Jesus. Just a bit of Pharisaical grumbling uh, to offer three stories of welcome, three stories of homecoming, three stories of hospitality, of lost and found, that would have their stodgy and judgmental heads spinning. Uh, three stories that, that tell that those who are lost are now found, that those who've been left behind or set aside uh, have a place at the table. That's, that's a story that we can get behind, right? Well, before we dig a little bit deeper, I want to invite you into to something that uh, will be a, a part of our experience today. I want to invite you um, to see yourself in the story. I want to invite you, maybe even push a little further, to see parts of yourself show up in different characters in the story. And this will require some brutal honesty along the way. So with that in mind, I'll go first. Uh, I'm not a few verses into Luke 15, and I'm already confronted with a part of myself that sounds a lot like the Pharisee. Um, I picture the scene, the scene with these scribes, these Pharisees, uh, getting on Jesus for welcoming sinners. I picture them tall for some reason, standing over Jesus with uh, sort of like angular faces and furrowed brows, uh, saying things like, hey, hey, you, you're the one who, who thinks that we should hang out with the unmentionables. That's you, right? You're the one who says we should dine with sinners, right? And already, here's the problem. Already, as I think about my own participation in this parable, I've cast these fellows into hell. Already, in my divided and dualistic mind, um, they are out. Already, already, I'm angling for an enemy. You see, that's what parables do. They're sneaky. Um, we think ourselves to be inclusive only to find out that we are the judge in the story. And so I, I, I'll let you off the hook right now. This is probably just me. I'm probably the only one who, who, uh, who in my dualistic mind is dividing the world in halves and casting the Pharisees into hell. But I do want to invite you to see yourself in the story. What, what character evokes wonder for you? Um, how does a parable sort of sneak in and hit you upside the head and say, yeah, yeah, that's something, that's something that you need to take a look at too. How do you see yourself in this story? I see this story as a story of shame, a story of shalom, and a story we find ourselves in. But first, it's a story of shame. Uh, now, you and, are, you and I are probably pretty well-versed in conversations about shame these days. Uh, it was back in like 2008, 2009, when I was on staff at City Church that a little-known University of Houston sociologist and researcher did a TED Talk. She thought about 500 people would watch it, and now it has over, I think, 30 million views. You know her. Her name is Brene Brown. Uh, she has taught us all a lot about shame and worthiness. Now, 10, 12, 13 years later, our vocabulary for shame is enlarged. But while many of us are familiar with shame, we've looked at our lives, we've looked at our stories, um, shame shows up 
in more sneaky ways in this parable. You've got to read between and beneath the lines. And you've got to get a sense of the cultural dynamics and taboos to really understand how shame works itself out. The parable begins with a bold ask from the younger son. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. And the son, of course, is asking for his in inheritance. In advance, before his father dies, he's asking for his inheritance. Now, if this happened today, if this happened in Western culture, we, we might think the son to be arrogant, maybe a bit inappropriate, but we might also make excuses for, for him. We, we might say, you know, maybe his dad was abusive. Maybe his dad wasn't a very good guy, so he had a right to do it. Um, maybe he had every right to take what was his. But this story in the ancient world, in a Middle Eastern context, in a patriarchal culture, where, where honor and respect for one's family is assumed, where, where nothing breaks the ironclad bond of family, this would have been devastating. Some of you, some of you know families like this. Some of you know uh, that to disagree in your family is to dishonor your family. But for the rest of us, um, haven't had that kind of experience, it's important to get into the story. Again, it's important to read beneath and between the lines and to acknowledge just how uh, enormous a blow this would have been to the father, how public a humili hum humiliation this would have been to the father especially. Think about it this way. We know from the rest of the story that the father is a really wealthy man. Uh, we hear about the fattened calves and the herd of goats, the house servants, the banquet hall, where in that culture he could have afforded to hire uh, professional musicians and dancers. We know that the text says that the, the younger son, son gathered all he had. In the New English Bible, it says he turned it into cash, which means that he's selling his share of the family farm. He's slicing off a third of the family farm. And as that happens, well, this is a big deal. This is a story that's going to go public. It's going to be on the front page of the New York Times, the Middle Eastern Times. Everyone would know the business of this family, how the younger son disrespected his father, the shame that it would bring to the younger son. Jewish law in the first century provided for the division of an inheritance uh, when the father was ready to make such a division. But it didn't grant the children the right to sell until after the father's death. But here, here's a departure from the cultural norm, which you see over and over in this story, and a subtle moment of unexpected grace. The father grants the inheritance and the right to sell, knowing that, uh, knowing this, that, that this will bring shame to himself and to the whole family. Uh, the father doesn't get into a public feud. He doesn't fight his son. He grants the request. The son sells his share of the family farm, and the entire village sees it. What strikes me about this is that the father doesn't let the son take the fall entirely. He absorbs some of the blow. By granting his request, now the villagers are starting to whisper to themselves, what, what's going on? Why would he do that? Um, already in the parable, 
we see a moment where the father would have an op opportunity to save face, and yet he doesn't take the opportunity to publicly shame his son, but actually participates in his son's shameful ask. It would be the talk of the town for days to come. So let's stop here for a moment. Do you see yourself in the story? Do you perhaps, like me, see yourself in the story of the father? Do, do you ask yourself, if I were the father, I'm not sure I could do that. If I were the father, I think I'd save face. Uh, I'd frame the narrative to preserve my reputation, to preserve my, my ego. Yeah, yeah, that kid, he's always been a problem. Selfish kid, he takes after his mom. See, we've got to ask ourselves the hard questions. Parables evoke wonder. They ask hard questions of us. Uh, would I, like the father, choose to absorb some of the shame? Not all of it, of course. The village would be enraged at the sun. But, but might I step in courageously to absorb some of the blow? Uh, years ago, I was helping a friend plant a church. He was a very gifted church planter. My wife and I were participants in the church plant. But this, uh, this guy made some really bad decisions along the way, and the church plant blew up. And we were mad. There were a number of us who were really angry at him, pointing the finger. Uh, and there was a list of things that we could point to. And yet, there was an older man, a wise sage among us, who uh, stopped us in our tracks. I remember him getting up before a group of us and saying, if you want to point the finger at anyone, point the finger at me. I was the one who got behind this guy. I was the one who said he was ready. I was the one who didn't ask the hard questions. If there's a finger uh, to be pointed at someone, it's to be pointed at me. Who, who does something like that? Who, who like, knowing that uh, that young pastor rightly deserved criticism, who stands in the gap and absorbs the shame. The father does this. Brene Brown says, the cruelty culture we see today is about fighting shame with shame. The cruelty culture we see today is about fighting shame with shame. And in this story, the father doesn't compound shame. He doesn't fight shame with shame. He enters into the shame. Now hold on for a moment, because this isn't the only time the father does this in this story. The parable goes on. Verse 13, a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. I'd love, 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 love to buy a front row seat to see the reaction of those Pharisees and scribes listening to Jesus tell this story. If the, the younger son's earlier sins were unforgivable, these sins are icing on the cake. Uh, the Jewish Talmud is a, an ancient collection of Jewish teaching and Jewish tradition. And in the Jewish Talmud is an ancient ceremony, the Ketzatza ceremony. Everyone say that two or three times to yourself. Ketzatza, Ketzatza, Ketzatza. The Ketzatza ceremony that describes what would happen to a Jewish boy who would lose his family inheritance amidst outsiders or Gentiles, precisely what happens in this story. Now, the Kitsatsa ceremony, and the Pharisees, by the way, the, the scribes and the Pharisees know this. The people interrogating Jesus at this moment know this, know this ceremony. This is a ceremony that describes the punishment 
of a young man, the public shaming of a young man, the cutting off of a young man who would lose his inheritance amidst the Gentiles, amidst the outsiders. In the ceremony, the villagers would bring a large earthenware jar filled with burned nuts and burned corn, and they would break this large earthenware jar in front of the guilty person, and together, get this, together, they would shout in unison, You are cut off from us! You are cut off from us! Can you imagine that? What a story. Now, say to yourself, uh, yeah, those are the kinds of things that happen in the first century. We don't do things like that today. Well, now we've got more psychologically and culturally appropriate ways of cutting people off, right? Family systems theorists talk about the psychological dynamic and coping mechanism of cutoff. It's a way of dealing with relationships. The point being, we don't like to stay in the tension of hard relationships. Uh, to ease the tension, we sometimes move toward people and become enmeshed or codependent. And in other circumstances, we simply cut ourselves off from people to deal with our anxiety, a psychologically appropriate way of cutting them. Now, by the way, there are times when we need to cut ourselves off from toxic people. I've been working with abuse victims for 25 years now, and you can bet that time after time, when I've seen people in abusive relationships, I've, I've said, you have to get away, you have to get away. There are times when it's important to get away, but sometimes cutoff is a convenient way of stepping out of the mess, the messiness of relationship, of bypassing pain, a way of avoiding our own anxiety. At other times in our culture, uh, cutoff is a way of maintaining the purity of the in-group. Some cults and religious communities do this. In Scientology, it's called disconnection. Uh, among the Jehovah's Witness, uh, Witnesses, it's called disfellowshipping. And even those of us who follow Jesus and call ourselves Christians have a way of doing this. It's called excommunication. And of course, we'd say we use this in all kinds of wise and appropriate ways. But at times, cut, cut off, excommunication is a way of shaming, is a way of scapegoating someone, maintaining the purity of the in-group. This isn't just a first century phenomenon. This is a 21st century phenomenon as well. And this makes for a clean world, doesn't it? Insiders versus outsiders, the pure versus the impure. I'm right and you're wrong. I'm enlightened and you're unenlightened. And once again, I find myself in that story. And I wonder if I wouldn't just be the one at the center of the firestorm with that earthenware jar in my hands saying, you are cut off from us. You are cut off from us. I consider myself pretty inclusive, but I've got a fairly large list of people who don't belong. What about you? How, do this, how does this parable meet you today? How does it evoke wonder? How does it challenge you right where you are? Well, again, in the story, the father shows us a different way. Turns out when the prodigal son leaves, it doesn't go so well for, for him. You've heard the story read. You know the rest of the story. Before he knows it, he's homeless. He's on the street. He's eating scraps from the garbage cans and yesterday's throwaways. So he hatches a plan. He says, you know, I'll go back and become one of my father's hired hands. In fact, he comes up with some religious language. It sounds a little bit like he's confessing his sins. And he repeats that story, that script, over and over again. 
as he's moving toward the village. Now he's at the outskirts of the village. The villagers see him. They're whispering, it's him. It's him. How dare he come back? The prodigal son is making his way down humiliation lane. Can you imagine it? People are starting to gather. For shame! For shame! And then, in the distance, the young boy sees a woman running toward him. A woman whose robe is pulled up, exposing her legs. She's crying. She's running. Um humbled. His eyes are averted. He looks down, and before you know it, she's on top of him, kissing him, kissing his neck, kissing his head. You're home. You're home. The lavish emotion, the extravagant embrace. Then he's hugging her. She's kind of hairy, and, and her voice, Dad? Dad, is that you? See, the father in this story acts very much like a mother would have acted in that day. The lavish emotion. You wouldn't have seen this in a father. A good, stern father would have remained home. He certainly would have run headlong in the direction of the prodigal son, bringing shame to himself in that way. But this father, this father isn't like any ordinary father. This father acts a lot like a mother. In fact, the scriptures time and again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, show God to be a mother. Deuteronomy 32, 18, Psalm 131, Isaiah 42, 14, Isaiah 66, 13. Even the name El Shaddai means the many-breasted one, the woman sufficient to meet the needs of her child. This is the subversive nature of a parable. This is the subversive nature of the biblical text written during a time of unquestioned patriarchy, even in the first century, Jesus is flipping the script. And now, while all eyes were on the younger son walking down humiliation lane, while all of the collective uh, shame was heaped upon him, now, now the collective gaze turns towards the father who's behaving about as wildly and as unexpectedly as the son once did. There are texts across the New Testament that talk about how Jesus shows us who God really is by taking on our shame, by becoming a servant, by enduring suffering, by becoming sin. That's exactly what's happening right here and right now. The father is taking on the shame. The eyes are averted. The gaze now is on the father, not the son. What's he doing? Why would he do this? Why would he take on the shame that rightly belongs to the son? And there's a lot I've had to unlearn uh, in Christian faith and theology. There's a lot I've had to walk uh, away from. There is a lot of toxicity. But this is a story I can get behind this is a story that compels me, a picture of God that can restory my imagination. God, a loving mother who meets my ashamed little boy within. And of course, the father gives him the sandals, reminding him of his dignity, the ring which reestablishes relationship with his son, a robe which covers his shame, a party which celebrates his homecoming. That's just good religion, isn't it? That's a story worth telling. That's a story worth finding ourselves in. And again, I have to ask myself, where do I find myself in this story? 
Where do you long to be in this story? There's a part of me that sees myself standing outside the story, wondering, could this really be true? Um, could I really be worthy of that love? Would God really run toward me in that way? There's a part of me that longs to be right at the very center of the story, receiving the hugs and the kisses and the lavish embrace. And finally, this is a story of shame turned to shalom. And that's not just a play on words. This is a story of redemption. This is a story of reconciliation. Um, let me set the scene for you. The older brother is now returning. He hears the commotion. He knows that there's a party going on. And the text says that he sees a slave and he asks that slave, what's, what's going on? Um, in truth, um, the word for slave in that day probably more accurately be translated young boy. The reality is, is that more likely than not, there would have been a group of young boys gathered outside of the party. The elders and the older men would have been reclining together at the party, but the young boys would be outside the party, celebrating within earshot of the party, dancing. Most likely, the older son came, came up to the, the sort of the outskirts of the party, got the attention of one of these younger boys and said, what's going on in there? Now, what we know of young children, at least from the words of Jesus, is that young children in the Gospels have a remarkable capacity for curiosity, a remarkable capacity for wonder. And this boy is no exception. In fact, he is pretty exceptional. The brother inquires in verse 27, and this is what the young boy says to him. He says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Well, at least that's how some translators put it. In reality, the, the, the word that's translated safe and sound, he's got him back safe and sound, is the word in the Greek, the word hygeno. And, and the word hygeno sounds a lot like an English word. What's that English word? Hygiene. See, the word hygeno is the word most often translated shalom throughout the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Fourteen times it appears, this word hygeno, throughout the Greek Old Testament, and fourteen times, without exception, it's translated shalom or peace. So in other words, when a first century Jew used the word hygeno, uh, people of that day mentally translated that word as shalom, as peace, as wholeness. That's pretty remarkable. That leads Kenneth Bailey, a New Testament scholar who lived in the Middle East the majority of his life, to say this. He says, I'm confident that Jesus used the word shalom in the story. The point is that the banquet is in celebration of the Father's successful efforts at creating reconciliation, shalom. And that the community has come to participate in that celebration rather than a kitsasa ceremony of rejection they're participating in the joy of a restoration achieved by the Father at great cost. Shalom over shame, compassion over kitsatsa, wholeness, shalom, peace, restoration. Well, at this point, maybe you're, you're also like me again, seeing the story uh, as one mired in shame but longing for shalom. Maybe 
maybe you, like me, see this story as a story that you long to be in. Maybe you see yourself, like me, as one who longs to be held, hugged, embraced, kissed. But, but maybe you, like me, also wonder if, if you might be the father in the story as well. The one who could bring peace to others. The one who can live as, as a, a whole person in a fragmented world. And yet, as we come to the very end of the story, I'm greeted by one last part of myself that sounds a lot like an angry elder brother. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. And just a quick note here. The father goes out again. Remember the father left home to go and greet the younger son, much to his own shame? Well, he leaves the party. The father isn't supposed to leave the party. He's the host of the party, but he leaves again, defying custom. The father always chooses to defy custom for the sake of love. Verse 29, the older brother answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. I'll be honest here, and maybe you can be honest too. This sounds a lot like me, envious me judgmental me, petty me. I'd like to think that I'm the kind of person whose love is expansive, but I wonder if I wouldn't just be the person marching up with my defense. I'd like to think that I'd be as generous as the Father, but I wonder if my love is expansive enough for the Pharisee in the story, the judgmental, religious, fundamentalist. I wonder if I'd leave the party for him. Well, the Father does go out. And what he says is absolutely remarkable. Verse 31, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he has been found. What an extraordinary thing to say. What an empathetic thing to say. The, the older brother is clearly living out of his own story of shame. He's clearly living out of his not-enoughness. In his universe, it's eat or be eaten. It's win or go home. It's if you screwed up your life, it's your fault. And the father doesn't say, if that's the way you want it, don't go and live your life. You're the one with a selfish attitude. You don't deserve my love. The father doesn't say that. The father sees through to the heart, beneath the arrogant exterior, but beneath the judgmental exterior. He sees his shame. He sees his insecurity. He sees his own unworthiness. Um, I wrote a book about a year and a half ago. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. I tried to paint the picture of the inner life of a narcissist. And one of the things I say in there is that behind the walled fortress of the grandiosity of the, the narcissist, is an ashamed little boy, an ashamed little girl. And, and maybe the reality is, is I am both the arrogant one and the ashamed one. And maybe I'm also the one who longs to move toward both, with curiosity, with compassion, with empathy. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Daughter, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. What empathy, what compassion. What an invitation to wholeness. 
And here's the mystery of this parable. Here's the mystery of this tale. We don't know what the Pharisee, what the elder brother does with this offer. It's a choose-your-own-adventure ending. Will he receive the lavish love? Will I receive the lavish love? Why receive the compassion, the empathy of the father who says, Son, daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. The reality is, is I still live in a story that's too small, too envious, too judgmental, too far from robes and rings, sandals and a feast, and a father who looks like a wildly affectionate mother. I love what Christina Cleveland says. She says, rather than using his power to distance himself from us, Jesus uses his power to approach us. He follows his own commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, often to his own detriment, I might add, by pursuing us with great tenacity in spite of our differences. He jumps a lot of hurdles to reach us. And I wonder to myself, what hurdles am I creating? What obstacles are you creating? What hurdles does the church create? And how can I get in on toppling hurdles and pursuing those who God and God's paradoxical power pursues at such great cost? In the end, we're beneficiaries of this great and lavish love, to be sure, but we're also called, as Henry Nowen says, to become the father, to become the mother to throw big parties where the table is open to everyone, to defy customs that require conformity, to tell stories and parables of shalom that conquer shame. So what story do you find yourself in today? What kind of story do you want to be in on? This parable opens wide the gates for us to choose. And I say, City Church San Francisco, let's walk the path of God's extravagant shalom together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.